Hello and welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari and this is Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we do the Old Kingdom of Egypt and the pyramids. In this episode, we ask a great question. How do you gain legitimacy when life is good? We've talked about legitimacy when you need to protect yourself from nomads. We need to protect yourself. We need legitimacy when you need to, when you are nomads and have to help find food or protect your people from destruction from other nomads. We've talked about legitimacy as a conqueror when you needed more land, more food, more money. And so you conquered other people and you took their land and food and money. We talked about legitimacy as the lawgiver when you had to protect people from their neighbors, from each other. Now we're going to talk about legitimacy when there aren't problems, when life is good. Okay, so our Egypt is broken into two different lectures and five different periods, not periods, uh, events. Because two of the things are named periods, which is why I can't call them periods. But there's three kingdoms, the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And they're separated by intermediate periods, the first and the second intermediate periods. Kingdoms are periods, kingdoms are times, excuse me, of stability. Things are good. Now, that doesn't mean peaceful. That doesn't even mean super rich, though it can. But it means stable. They're, they're, Egypt is working how it's supposed to work. The intermediate periods are periods of upheaval, of tumult, of violence. And so in this lecture, we're going to talk about the Old Kingdom and into we're going to introduce the first intermediate period. In our next lecture, we talk about the Middle, the Second, and the New Kingdom. So, like always, we start with geography. Africa. Africa. Um, Egypt is in northeastern Africa. It is in Africa, but it's not African. Now, that may strike you as, like, weird, but we're going to talk about geography in a second. The Egyptians thought of themselves as their own continent. They're not Mesopotamian. They are definitely not connected to the Mesopotamians culturally. Um, you know, they're connected. They'll eventually be connected by trade, but they see themselves as separate. And the thing about it is because they're so isolated because of geography, and we'll talk about how, they thought of themselves as their own continent and their own people, but so did other people. The Greeks and the Romans thought of Egypt as, as Egyptos. It's, it's just Egypt. It's just separate. It really is. Africa is somewhere else. And Africans are to the south. Cush and Mero. They're, down, they're up the river. They're beyond the deserts. Egyptian Egypt is its own place. It might as well be the moon. And for the old kingdom, it really might as well have been the moon in terms of how it interacted with the world. So now 
as this class goes on, we will talk about how Egypt interacts more and more with other peoples and with Africans and with African culture. It's never completely cut off. This is especially true in the New Kingdom and periods after this. African culture will come down the rivers and influence Africa. There's actually a book called uh, Black Athena, I think, or Black Athens that was written back when I was in undergraduate or early graduate school. And the idea was um, Egypt has a black pharaoh. Not pharaoh, it has a black dynasty, I should say. Um, it has a black dynasty of Kushite kings that conquer Egypt after the Bronze Age collapse. But even before that, the New Kingdom conquered Kush and conquered parts of uh, the Nile, Africa, and incorporated it into a Egyptian empire. And the idea was, well, people mix. People always mix. Because those two dynasties, the New Kingdom and the, the Kushite dynasty, are going to try to make trade between sub-Saharan Africa and Egypt easier because it's their kingdom. They want to make more money. They want more peace. They want more armies. They All kinds of stuff. And so people are going to mix. So that means cultures are going to mix. But here's the thing. 600 years after that, the Greeks show up. And the Greeks are like, wow, Egypt is awesome. And they start taking Egyptian culture. And Plato tells us this. Plato tells us that the Greeks will take all kinds of Egyptian culture, which means without knowing it or with knowing it, they took parts of African culture. Then they made it Greek. The Romans conquered the Greeks. So they took that Greek culture that was influenced by Egyptian and African culture, made it Roman by making, by conquering Europe, the Romans made it European. And so here we are in the 21st century with a 500 years of racism and how black people are terrible and black civilization doesn't matter and and whites are the greatest thing in, since sliced bread, which they invented in order just to prove how white they are. And all <laughs> major parts of their culture are actually parts of Africa all the way back, which should blow racist minds. They should just go... Pow! So European culture is in its DNA part African. I mean, and literally all humans come from Africa and you get that part too, but I mean, even in the cultural speaking, white civilization, which claims it's Christian and Judeo and, and Greek and Roman, has African influences in it. It's a hell of a theory and it works. It makes sense. I mean, black Africans went to Europe during the Roman Empire. They worked in the Greeks. Why not? There wasn't racism in the ancient world. But back to Egypt. It is the oldest continuous civilization of the ancient world. It is 25 dynasties before the Greeks even show up. So... Cities in Mesopotamia start older than Egypt. 
But there's tumult, there's destruction. Sumer is destroyed or taken over by Akkad, and then Babylon replaces that, and then Assyria replaces that. And there's this constant tumult, there's violence all the time in Mesopotamia. Whereas Egypt is continuous and continuous and continuous and continuous. It's geography. Has two parts, and those parts bring isolation and connection. Isolation is brought by the deserts and the Nile cataracts. The deserts are on either side. Egypt does not include, even though the modern country of Egypt includes the deserts, in the ancient world, it didn't. Egypt was the Nile. Because no one lived in the deserts, or very few people. Desert nomads lived in the deserts. And so you have the Libyan desert on your left, on your west, the Sinai desert on the east. And they effectively kept out armies. They kept out people. You couldn't trade over those deserts. They're too, they're too dry. They're too trackless. Even the Hebrew story of the Exodus is we got lost in the Sinai for 40 years, right? Now, obviously, that's a story, right? They weren't nomadic peoples wandering around the desert for 40 years, but it's the idea that the Sinai is trackless. It could swallow up people. So you didn't really, you didn't cross it. It was a barrier. Now, the Nile cataracts, and if you're watching the video, you can see the first cataract is on the lower left. The second cataract is a giant waterfall on the right. They are blockages in the flow of the Nile. There are giant islands. And you know this because we use the word cataract to, to cover. We don't use a scientific word. I mean, I'm sure there is a Latin scientific word for what a cataract is, but no one knows it. They use cataract, which is the film that covers the eye that prevents light from coming into the eye effectively. Well, that's what the cataracts do. Science took the words cataract from the Egyptians, meaning blockages. It blocks the flow of the Nile, which means trade is hard, which means armies really, I mean, you, how, do you build, how do you bring an army past the waterfall if you're bringing all of your supplies by river? You have to take the boats off the land. You have to then take them down the mountain. Yeah, it's too hard. And so they, they allow for isolation, protection, and boundaries. The deserts are the boundary. The cataracts literally are the boundary between empires. The first cataract is the end of Egypt. That's as far south as it goes. Then there's a frontier land. And then there's the second cataract. And beyond the second cataract is, is, is Africa. Is the kingdoms of Kush and Mero and Nipata, Namibia. You know, the, these kingdoms are second to the third cataract, third to the fourth cataract. They grow up in these boundaries between the cataracts. What does this allow for? It allows for a homogeneous culture with little contact for foreigners. There's really only two places you can meet foreigners. One is a port city in the north on the Delta. That's where um, Phoenicians mostly will come to trade. That's where the Greeks will end up showing up. 
And the second is where the first cataract is. So there is contact with Africa. There is contact with Mesopotamia. But if you lived in the middle of Egypt and the Nile in Egypt is 800 miles long, if you did not live at the tip or the tip, if you lived in the middle, you could go your entire life and never meet a foreigner. Never, ever. Because why would foreigners go into the middle of Egypt? They could go to the, the edge, the border, sell all their goods, buy what they needed, go back home. Why wander? So it's a homogeneous culture. The people between those cataract and the delta, between the deserts, are Egyptian. That's just the way it is. They're just Egyptian. They are technologically behind Mesopotamia. Why? Because they don't have much interaction. Remember, Babylon is so advanced because it has all these people mixing. It has all this competition. You don't have that in Egypt. You have a homogeneous culture. So whatever works continues to work. So they don't have the wheel. Why? They have the Nile. They don't have horses. Why? They live in the middle of a desert and they're not connected to the great grasslands of Central Asia. They, if they don't have horses, they don't need chariots. Which brings us to part two is it's peaceful. There's no invasions. They have no army. So on an, on an essay, if I say, what is one of the disadvantages of the old kingdom? And I say, they don't have armies. And you pick that. Or you tell me that in an essay. You're wrong. Why? Because they're not invaded. They don't need an army. They're peaceful. There are no invasions. Three, there's unity. It creates the deserts and the cataracts create Egypt. There are clear boundaries. There is a north. There is a the delta, where the Mesopotamian, oh, Mesopotamian, the Mediterranean Sea is in the north. Right where the Nile flows into the sea. There's a south where the first cataract stops kind of trade and going south. There's the two deserts on the east and the west. So there is clear boundaries of what Egypt is. Egypt is the first nation state. There are other kingdoms. There are other cities. There might be other empires, depending on how you want to define an empire. Before Egypt. Or concurrent with Egypt. But Egypt is the first country, the first nation state, where the people within it are Egyptian. It has clear boundaries. It has a unification of law, of weights and measures, of language. And so all of that creates wealth and e efficiencies. The Nile is the second part of our geography, and it is the longest river in the ancient world. It equals life. It still equals life. If you're looking at the video, you can look on the uh, bottom left, and you, you can see the green. That's where all the farms are. That's where, the, that's where the, the Nile is. That's where the food is. And then it's surrounded by desert. But if you go to the right-hand side image, you will see Egypt lit up at night. And it is the same Egypt. The Delta, all lit up. 
And then this long string coming down. That's the Nile. That's where all the people are living. The people live where the water is. There are lights in the desert. A lot of that is oil fields. You can see the lights of the Red Sea, the border of the Red Sea. You could see Suez, this line tracking through between darkness and light. But where are the people living? Where the green is, where the Nile is. It is life. It is Egypt. Egypt is the Nile. And that brings connections. Egypt is 800 miles long, but only 15 miles wide. It is the delta to the cataract, the north to the south. Now, the Nile goes well into Central Africa and it will combine African peoples and bring um, nutrients. It will bring water. It will bring food. It will bring trade up and down it, right? The cataracts slow that down. They limit that, but they don't end it. It provides transportation. The Nile provides transportation for Egyptians to trade, interact, and move. You could go from the delta to the cataract, start over, and still be in the same place that used the same money, that used the same laws, that had the same language. It's like going from New York to California, stopping in Chicago in the middle. You could always get a burger and know that it will be good. A McDonald's burger from west coast to east coast to the middle. Burger and a Coke, you know what that's going to taste like. Well, that's Egypt. The Nile allows for connection, as I spoke about, with African kingdoms, especially the kingdom of Kush, which is just south on the second cataract. So that's trade. That will be later mercenaries. The Nile also floods for three months every year. Everything is 10 feet underwater. Remember... Egypt is 15 miles wide. Well, that's now 10 feet underwater. Now, we've seen floods before, right? We've talked about Gilgamesh. Flood kills everybody. You know the story of Noah. Flood kills 99.8% of the people. So in Mesopotamia, floods are traumatic. They're a trauma. It's a devastation. It's got to be what it is in Egypt, right? No. No, it's not. Why? Why is it not trauma? It happens every year. Why does this not traumatize Egyptians? Because it happens every year. It's predictable. You know it's going to happen. From May to September every year, everything's underwater. So you could prepare for it. If you know everything's 10 feet underwater, where are you going to build your house? You're going to build it 11 feet in the air. This is literally what they're doing in New Orleans. In New Orleans, when they reconstructed after Katrina, they marked where the height, high, height of the flood was. And they say, you have to build above that. Your first floor must be above that. It also brings rich sediment. All of this gunk, all this dead 
animals, all this fertilizer comes up in the flood and is when the waters recede, it's left. It's a mess, but it's left. But what does that allow for? Egypt had three to five harvests a year. Now, why does that matter? It matters because Mesopotamia had one harvest a year, if they were lucky, and they had unpredictable floods, meaning one year you're going, oh, this is great, I'm doing wonderful. But you're living on one harvest. And then the next year, a flood comes and wipes out everything, wipes out your house, wipes out your land, wipes out, wipes out everything, drowns your kids. Mesopotamia is poorer than Egypt. Mesopotamians are poorer than Egyptians. Egyptians, with their three to five harvests, are three to five times richer than Mesopotamians on average. Because think about it. You eat that one harvest, right? That one harvest is what you eat and then that little bit of savings you put away, right? When Egypt... You can eat that one harvest, right? And then you've got two more harvests. One you can save. One you can sell. And then the next year, you compound that by eating another one and having another one you can save and another one you can sell. Well, why save two? You could now sell two. It's the difference between making $30,000 a year $90,000 a year, and $150,000 a year. If you're making $90,000 a year or $150,000 a year and working three months less than a person working all year round making $30,000 a year, what do you think about life? What do you think about the gods? You think life is good. There has never been a better worker time, a better time for workers than ancient Egypt because you worked nine months of the year. You couldn't work three more months. I get students who are like, well, why didn't they work three more? Everything's underwater. Everything. The only jobs that are going on are government jobs and like essential services helping people. Like there, you can't farm Everything is on the water. There is no work. You're basically doing vacation and childcare. That's what you're doing. And everybody's doing that. No one's expected to work because everything is 10 feet underwater. You have to just wait. So what's your attitude towards life? They love life. Life is great. Life is so good in ancient Egypt that when you died, the afterlife, you got to do it again. Pharaohs came back as pharaohs. But farmers came back as farmers. They didn't need a better afterlife. And why would you have a worse afterlife? That didn't make any sense. They got the exact same life over again. So that's why you would bury people with the instruments of their work, with the instruments of their life. Because when they woke up in the afterlife, they got to do it all again. And that's awesome. So what's their attitude towards the gods? The gods are great. The Mesopotamian gods are awful. You have blood gods. You have child murder gods. You have death gods. And you have gods that balance those out. But in Mesopotamia, the gods are out to murder you. Even the Jewish god does that. Even the Hebrew god. 
murders 98% of the people on earth. He allows Satan to torture Job. The Hebrew God is a lot of things in the Old Testament, but nice is not one of them. And he, to be fair, he, she, it, because the Hebrew God is ungendered, doesn't advertise niceness. Justice, sure. But not niceness. The Egyptian gods are nice. The Egyptian gods are helpful. So they like the gods. So people make $150,000 a year equivalent today because it's, let's say what in Mesopotamia you would make the average income, right, of an American, about $50,000. So five times that is $250,000, right? But you do it in nine months. So life is good. That's actually a problem for government, for legitimacy. Because people go, why do I need government? And you get this. My, my wealthy friends say the same thing. They're like, I don't need government. Government doesn't help me. And I will point out roads and schools and stuff. And they're like, ah, I send my kid to Catholic school. Roads they can't quite get around. They know they need roads. And I'm like, electricity and like all of these things. But they go, I have enough money. I could, I could do it on my own. I don't need government to be in my face. Government's for poor people. And that is an attitude that goes well back. The government's job is to help people who need help. Well, what if your life is good and you don't necessarily need help? You go, why do I need government? Why don't you need a king telling me what to do? I know what to do. I'm a good person. And so we're going to come back to that problem. But we have to talk about the old kingdom. We have to set this up. The old kingdom goes from, the dates vary. And I used to tell, it's about a thousand years. But they're, they're squashing the times and it's getting closer to 500 years. Um, but no one knows. See, this is the, this is the thing. No one can precisely point out because Egypt was using its own time frame. And so what you're trying to do is match things up and, but it's safe to say that the old kingdom goes from about 2700 BC to 2200 BC, though I am perfectly willing to send it to around 2000 BC. Um, it's successful. It lasts 500 plus years. It is a very successful kingdom. It may be the oldest continuous kingdom to exist in the history of the world. Of one kind of form of government. It is stable. There are only three dynasties, which a dynasty is a family. There's only three. Versus the dynasties 7 to 11. So 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Which are the first intermediate period. So there's three dynasties that last 500 years. Versus five dynasties in the first intermediate period within 100 years. So think about it. Each dynasty lasts in the Old Kingdom 150 years or so. While in the dynasties of the first intermediate period, remember I told you a period 
is turmoil, they last maybe 20 years, which is two people. So we got stability. We got more stability. There's no invasions because of the deserts. There's peace. There's no armies. And that's a godlike ability. Peace is godlike. Think about it. We do this today, right? Thoughts and prayers for school shootings. Why? Why would religious people give thoughts and prayers? Well, one is the prayers for the victims and their souls. But the other is for God to prevent this kind of violence from happening again. Peace is a godlike ability. Gods bring peace. So the government has peace. So people start going, well, the Pharaoh, the king, must be godlike. He's got a godlike ability to have peace. Do you remember a war? I don't remember a war. Does your grandfather remember a war? Does his grandfather remember a war? I don't know. We can't write. Well, that's fair enough. And then there's prosperity, which we talked about. The Nile floods, you get these extra harvests. There's money, 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 money. Now, there's not literally coinage money, but whatever the wealth is, you've got it. And you've got it more than the Mesopotamians do. Egypt will produce way more food than it needs and will be the richest kingdom in this entire course. For most of this entire course, I, I should say. All of, at least until the early Middle Ages... Egypt is the richest place we're going to talk about. Uh, it might be the rise of Han China. That replaces it. Because it's just so big. But that's what that, but that's the level we're talking about, and that's 3,000 years from now. So, in the Mediterranean world, in the European, North African, and Middle Eastern world, Egypt is the bomb as we used to say back in the day. I don't know what you kids say anymore. Life is so good. It's stable. It's peaceful. People are making money. Pharaoh must be a god. Pharaoh must be at least an avatar of the gods. He has godlike abilities. But why do we need him? Why do we need government? Why do we need to pay taxes? What are we getting out of this? Now, there's the worry about if you get rid of Pharaoh, you won't have the prosperity or the stability, right? The Pharaoh's job is to make sure the Nile floods and you don't get invaded. And that's worth paying for. Let's be honest. So that your life can keep going on and you don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry if the Nile floods. The Pharaoh will do the, the religious deeds He'll do the religious ceremonies. His priests will make sure the gods are happy. Good. What about invasions? It's his job to make sure no invasions happen. Now, because of the deserts, that's not a hard job, but it's a job. You want someone on alert or at least going to bed thinking about it. You know? So, it's worth, so there's something worth paying for, but it also means why does it have to be this pharaoh? Why couldn't it be like me? Why can't I be Pharaoh? Why don't we have a democracy? Why don't we vote for a Pharaoh? Like, why do we have to have the system we have? Right? Legitimacy is a problem because there's no threat. There's no, if we don't do this, bad stuff will happen. You better pay up. Right? Remember, legitimacy in Mesopotamia, you built on walls. If you don't get walls, nomads kill you. There are no nomads for Egypt that they have to worry about. 
And so how will they get legitimacy? Pyramids. Pyramids is how they'll get it. And let's face it. It is stunningly successful. Why? Because you, you in my Candom County College class in the, in the end of the Delaware River, uh, in a bend overlooking Philadelphia, would like to one day jump in a jet plane, fly across an ocean, then across a sea to a country who you do not know anything about beyond what you learn in this course and maybe what you read in National Geographic to see these pyramids. Let's face it, it's been on the bucket list of people since they're built. That's why it's the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was that the seven wonders of the ancient world was a tourist bucket list for Romans. It was an itinerary. It's like things you had to see. And number one was the Egyptian pyramids. You had to see them. And here's the funny thing, because they're not built with mortar, because it doesn't rain in Egypt, because they're just stone and they're held up by gravity. They will be the last thing, last man-made thing to exist on Earth. After humans wipe themselves out with either a plague or nuclear war or something, after we're gone, the pyramids will be the last thing standing. The deserts will swallow up the pyramids. And it's the first great thing humans built. That's stunning. That's crazy to me. So why build pyramids? To gain legitimacy. The only reason why you're building pyramids is to gain legitimacy. Remember, in Mesopotamia, you build armies. In Egypt, in Old Kingdom Egypt, you build pyramids. Why? Well, Pharaoh has money. Egypt is the richest place on earth. So Pharaoh has money. And Pharaoh wants to be liked. He needs to show off. And people have time because of the floods. Three to four months every year, they have vacation. So Pharaoh has money. He wants to be like. He needs to show off. He needs to do something people will be impressed by. And people have the time. So what do you do? You build a giant building that takes 20 years or more to build three months at a time. And you use a highly paid workforce to entice them to work in the desert during the flood season. No slaves. No slaves were used to build this pyramid. Slaves did not build the pyramids, nor did the Hebrews. So why do people think slaves built the pyramids? Basically 19th century Protestant Sunday school teachers. That's basically it. Nice ladies trying to teach kids about Jesus didn't understand what they were talking about. The Exodus story is written at about 500 BCE. It's written about events that take place somewhere around 1,000 to 1,200 BCE. In this way, Exodus is very much like Homer. But this is written down 2,000 years after the pyramids are already built. The pharaoh in the Exodus stories is Ramses. That's a new kingdom pharaoh name, not an old kingdom pharaoh name. The thing about 19th century gentlefolk, rich white women teaching Sunday school, was that they understood that work sucked. They looked at factories and said, that sucks. Work 
sucks. Rich people didn't work. Colin Firth in Pride and Prejudice doesn't work. Lizzie walks all the time in Pride and Prejudice. Emma in Emma has no job. She doesn't work. She doesn't do anything. So they looked at building the pyramids, these giant things in the middle of a desert in hot Egypt, and said, oh, that must have sucked. Well, I wouldn't work there. You wouldn't work there. No one would work there. So who had to build it? Slaves must have built it. And the Bible says Hebrews were slave, ergo proctor hoc. Therefore, it follows. The Hebrews must have built the pyramids or... If they didn't build all of the pyramids, at least Egyptian slaves built the pyramids. And it's wrong. It is wrong on every count. One, there's no evidence the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt. There's none. There's no physical evidence of it. Two, there's lots of evidence of pay. That Pharaoh paid and paid well. There's lots of evidence from the receipt, he, they have the receipts. Literally, the receipts have, have survived 3,000 years. And two, it's racist. It's racist to think the Egyptians couldn't build their own pyramids. All right. The pyramids are wildly successful. It takes decades to build. There are few tools. It means lots of people have to return year after year after year. The very fact that they exist means people liked Pharaoh. Legitimate Pharaoh must have had legitimacy. People come back. Think about it. You hate your job. Do you go back to it? No. Now, you may be forced to or whatever, but if you hate your job, the moment you leave, you don't go back. You go find another job. You go do something else. So they don't, they vote with their feet. They come back year after year after year. So Pharaoh has a rep. Pharaoh is a god, right? Or a homeboy of the gods. Pharaoh can't be cheap. His entertainment can't be bad. Food, entertainment, medicine, sewage, infrastructure. It all costs money. Huge amounts of money. And he can't do any of this badly. And in fact, when you have a female Pharaoh, she can't do any of this badly. And there are women pharaohs. They're, Pharaoh is a, is a homeboy home girl of the gods. Pharaoh is not gendered. That's why we use Pharaoh and not king. Pharaoh is a religious job as well as a political one. Pharaoh is not a king. Pharaoh does the job of a king and a queen and a chief priest and lots of things. Pharaoh is a god. Alexander loved being Pharaoh. Of all the jobs Alexander have, Pharaoh was the greatest one. Pharaoh is awesome. Pharaoh is, let's just be honest, Pharaoh is the greatest job humans have ever invented in the entire history of jobs. Pharaoh is it. Everyone, I have a great job. I am a tenured college professor. Everybody who's right now talking on TV about how smart they are and on CNN and they write books about culture that they don't really understand and they just read a bunch of uh, sociology books, all of them are hoping they have a job near mine. <clears throat> now, they may look down on the community college and be like, well, I really want to be at Harvard. Well, F you. You don't have a PhD. You've got to be much more famous. But you wish you had my job. And I wish, and I have a good job, I wish I had Pharaoh's job. Pharaoh is the greatest job ever invented in the history of jobs. But you need an immense amount 
of money to build pyramids. And size matters. Oh, size matters. Gentlemen, don't let anybody tell you the size of your pyramid doesn't matter. It does. Think about it. Which would you rather have when someone sees your pyramid for the first time? Surprise! What do you think? What do you want their reaction to be? Do you want their reaction to be, wow, that's huge. It's immense. It's gigantic. It's tremendous. Or would you like them to say, oh, it's so cute. Look at it. It's little. It's so, it's so, I, you want to give it a hug. It's just so cute. Oh, it's little. I didn't think, uh, I'm surprised. Look at how little it is. Which one, gentlemen? It's your pyramid. It's going to stand in for your power. It's going to stand in for your legitimacy. It's going to stand in for your ego. Which one? You want bigger. Of course you want bigger. Why? Because of what it represents. It doesn't do a job any differently than the smaller pyramid. It represents your power. The bigger it is, the better the pharaoh. The pyramid is solid. There's no air in it. There's a little room where they bury the, bury the pharaoh and his, his uh, family in the middle. Up high. The, the entrance is actually at the top, not the bottom. They're not hollow. Because to keep up all that weight, they have to fill in all that space. There's a small little place. Your modern bedroom is probably bigger than the amount of air, of open space for the pharaoh in his pyramid. So why build something so enormous when you have maybe a, a 10 by 10 space? Why? Because it represents power. The bigger it is, the better the pharaoh. Now, Khufu has the biggest pyramid. He's got the pyramid on the picture all the way to the left. The biggest one. You know nothing about Khufu other than he has the biggest, by far, pyramid. I know there's an optical illusion where the, the pyramid that's, I think it's his son's or is it's father's, looks like it's pretty big. But actually, Khufu's pyramid is so big, that pyramid would fit inside of it. It's the biggest pyramid. What do you think about, Far what do you think about Khufu? He must have been awesome. Right? He must be the best. He must be the best old kingdom pharaoh. Right? He has the biggest pyramid. So size, the size of it, what does it represent? It means more people worked on it for longer, which means the king's reign must be longer and his people must have life, loved him more. Again, it could be a woman. Right? There are female pharaohs. There are female pharaohs. The size also means more stone, more resources, more food, more money had to be spent. It meant that pharaoh must be richer than other kings and other pharaohs. Ooh. Khufu's pyramid is so big. It is 485 feet tall. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, built 1,500 years later in Mesopotamia, the tallest thing ever built in Mesopotamia, is 75 feet tall. So even after 1,500 years, the Mesopotamians still were one-seventh the height 
of Khufu's pyramid. So, the man who topped off Khufu's pyramid at 485 feet tall, the, the one man that had to be a guy or a couple guys, three, four guys, who put in that last stone, centered it in, hammered it in, moved it in, right? I hope they took time for a smoke. I hope they sat there and looked out at what they were seeing. I really do. Because for that minute, two minutes, three minutes that they worked and they did that, they would be the tallest humans on earth on a man-made structure until the building of cathedrals in Europe 4,000 years later. 3,000, what do you say, 3,500 to 4,000 years later. Humans did not stand on a man-made structure in the air higher than that. Like, I know, I get students who go, but there are mountains. Yeah, but they, you're talking about being the top of the Empire State Building. A human-made structure. Those guys sat there looking out at the universe below them like a god. Birds would have flown underneath them. And they were the highest humans for the next 3,500 to 4,000 years. And I really do hope they appreciated that. They probably didn't because humans are humans. It's like the, you get to the, you get to the, the um, top of Mount Everest in the Himalayas and the average, and it used to be that the average person would stay there two minutes. They get there. They would try so hard. They break, they might die getting there, though most people die going down. But they're risking life and they're risking death and they're risking all of this money, tens of thousands of dollars, all of the time to get to the top of the to the top of Mount Everest to see something that no one sees. And they spend less than two minutes there. And now because Mount Everest is so crowded, it's very likely they spend like less than 20 seconds there, 30 seconds there. They take a selfie and they're like, all right. And people are like, get out of the way, man. Move, dude. Get out the way. Get out the way, dude. Get out the way. Because there's now a back. Everyone wants to get to the top of Everest. And there's lines of 200 people trying to get to the top before the storm comes in and murders everybody. So how does the old kingdom decline? Well, it's actually the pyramids. The pyramids make the old kingdom. They make Pharaoh popular. They're these massive things. People, and everybody likes it. Why? Because they come home with money. And now, ladies, think about this. One, you got rid of your husband for three months. So that pain in the butt is gone, right? He's no longer sitting there playing Fortnite, eating Cheetos on the couch. He went and did work. He comes back three months later. Now, what kind of work did he did? He did heavy manual labor for three months in the sun. So what does Pharaoh send back to you? Pharaoh sends back to you, ladies, a ripped husband with a tan. A tan, ripped 
husband with money in his pocket. Good money. A bonus money. To spend on you. Do you like Pharaoh? You should like Pharaoh. You know. He sent you back Liam Helmsworth. Or Chris Evans. Or Chris Pratt. Right? So, second, the men like it. Why do the men like it? The men like it because it's masculine work. They get to do something. They get to build something. They get to participate with other men doing manly things. They get the pride of accomplishing something. So you can imagine they're on a drive, going down the highway, and you, you have the kids in the back, and you're like, it's like 1954, right? And it's, you got your station wagon with the wood paneling and you're like, got your little fisherman hat and you're going on vacation to the shore and you're like, see that over on the west, son? That's a pyramid. And you're like, wow, dad, did you build that? And you're like, yep, I did. That's what I was doing all summer. I built that all by myself. Wow, dad, you're amazing. Yep, that's right, son, I am amazing. Wow, I hope one day to grow up to work with you on a pyramid. Oh, you will, son. You will. And in fact, Khufu's pyramid lasted so long. It lasted 20 plus years that fathers who started it worked on it with their kids at the end of it. So it was even this bonding. Even Pharaoh brought families together, fathers and sons working together, doing awesome work. And remember, he now comes home. He's ripped right, from three months of working hard and eating good food, right? And by good food, we mean food as good as you can get in 3000 BC Egypt, right? He's got money. He's taking his kids on vacation. He has done a good job. Pharaoh has come to him and said, you have done a good job, right, before giving them the money and sending them away, right? So do people like Pharaoh? Shit, yeah, they like Pharaoh, they're not going to revolt. There is no revolutions. There's no revolts against Pharaoh. There's no civil war. Are you insane? They love Pharaoh. They're building pyramids for 500 years for Pharaoh. It's something to look forward to. It's awesome. The problem is, is that pyramids become so important because they become so big. They become the form of legitimacy that they require Pharaoh's attention, which is a problem because government needs to get other things done. Now, Pharaoh, right, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. How embarrassing would it be if your, your pyramid fell over? You can't blame other people for that. You're Pharaoh. You have to get your pyramid. You got to get it done, and you got to get it done right. So you have to be in charge of it. But government needs to get other stuff done. The Nile needs to be dredged, right? Canals need to be paid for, right? Entertainment needs to be financed, uh, kids taking karate cat classes have to be stopped from f kicking down fences. And so the people used to go to Pharaoh. They'd call up Pharaoh and be like, yo, Pharaoh, I need help. And Khufu would be like, I got you. I can solve this problem and work up my pyramid at the same time. But after Khufu, increasingly they can't. Increasingly they choose pyramids over helping the people. That doesn't mean they don't help the people. 
what they do is they call up their nobility. They call up their homeboys and say, yo, 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 Dave, 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 I need a, I need a help. And Dave is like, dude, Pharaoh, whatever you need, man. Dave, I got a problem. I got these karate kids in your, in your neighborhood. They're chopping down fences. Oh, I saw that. Well, I need you to take care of that. Oh, okay, I could do that. Um, look, I'm going to send some money your way. Because you're going to hire people, but I want it taken care of. I don't want to hear any more problems. Okay, I got you. No problem. I got you. Dave out. So the nobles step in to fill in that role. They help the people. They run local governments. But what does that mean? That means when I have a problem, I don't call Pharaoh anymore. I don't call 1-800-Pharaoh. Because when I call 1-800-Pharaoh, you get the... Thank you for calling 1-800-FARO. Please, if you know the name of your local nobility, please press 1. If you know your location, please press 2 and be prepared to enter your zip code. If you know neither, please press 3 and we will get you to customer service. You're no longer talking to FARO. So what do people do? They just go to the nobleman and they call the nobleman. So now the nobleman is getting the legitimacy. Nobody hates Pharaoh, but they're not using him. Pharaoh becomes less important. He's not governing. He's building pyramids. He's pyramid builder in chief. He's not Pharaoh anymore. So legitimacy fades away. It transfers to the nobility who are solving the problems. And we see this because suddenly obelisks go up. Obelisks are these needles, 50, 75 feet, 100 feet, that go up into the air. They are built by the nobility. Why? Well, can the nobility build a pyramid? No. No one, they don't have enough money to build a pyramid. Two, if you build a pyramid, what is that saying? That is saying you are equal to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to get pissed about that. So what did they do? They took these stone, they carved it up so it's tall so you could see it, right? So again, pyramids, big, obelisks, big. So it makes total sense. But the obelisk has four flat sides so what do you do you carve the story of the awesomeness of the noble person onto it you carve their story it's like hamilton in rock who will tell your story i will tell my own story because i'm going to build an obelisk and that's what the note so people looking for help would come they'd see the obelisk and go they read a helper of the poor solver of lost children um, finder of lost keys. Oh, there we go. There we go. This is my guy. I'm going to go to him, this guy. So we get these opalists that go up. So the no, nobility is not competing with Pharaoh. They're not at war with Pharaoh. But they're using the same language as Pharaoh. And what happens is the last Pharaoh dies. And nobody cares. The old kingdom just faded away. Why? Because the pharaoh wasn't doing the job anymore. And notice, as he's giving money to each of the noble people to get to, get, to do work, to, to get government working at the local level, that means pharaoh has less money for pyramids. So pyramids get smaller, which means less people work on pyramids, which less means less people are working on the pyramids, less people are interacting with pharaoh, less people are being helped by pharaoh's government. Why do we need a pharaoh? And so the old kingdom fades away. 
And people kind of dream into 100, 200 years later, the first intermediate period. They're like, wait a minute. There's no Pharaoh. And then noble people start going, I could be Pharaoh. Remember, I said no, the Pharaoh is the greatest job ever. Well, what would you do to be the Pharaoh? You'd fight for that. And so you get the first intermediate period, which is 100 years of civil war by the nobility. But it kind of dreams into it. The old kingdom fades away, and then there's this weird period where nothing happens. Egypt just runs like a car out of gas. Right? And just keep, or uh, uh, if you've ever been on a cruise ship that, that shuts off its engines and just kind of cruises, right? It's just, it keeps going for miles. That's Egypt. And then all of a sudden, it gears back up as a civil war starts to who will become the new pharaoh. And that's the first intermediate period, this hundred year period. And when we come back in our next episode, we will talk about who wins, how they create the Middle Kingdom. What happens to the Middle Kingdom? How they create the new kingdom, which is the famous kingdom, which is the one you go to museums to see. That's Ramses, and that's the chariots, and that's King Tut. And then what happens when the Bronze Age collapse arrives? And that's what our next episode will be. So thank you. Be safe. Take care. Stay healthy.